So our theme for our series for the next three weeks is getting you guys ready for Collide. And Collide, the theme this year is Renew, uh, which is also in Romans chapter 12, okay? Romans chapter 12 is divided into three sections, and we'll have three speakers at Collide. Each speaker will go through one of those sections. We have three Wednesdays. You see what's happening? We have three Wednesdays before Collide, so I'm going to spend some time with you guys in each of those three sections. So by the time we get to Collide, you guys will know What's up? And you can lean over to kids from other churches and be like, oh, don't worry, I know what this means. And you can help them fill it in, right? But in like a, in like a loving, you get it, okay? All right, so Collide, Collide chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. And it'll be on the board as well. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, when I, so that's Romans 12, 1 through 2. When I was in college and just started kind of interviewing for jobs, one of the guys who was interviewing me asked me, he said, give me your elevator pitch for why you think you should work here. And I didn't do very well, because I didn't know what an elevator pitch was. So that did not go well for me, right? Here's what an elevator pitch is. An elevator pitch is a 30-second time to explain something, okay? That's an elevator pitch, right? If someone asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that mean? Romans 12, 1 through 2 would be your elevator pitch because it is the entire Christian religion summed up in two verses. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a guy that you need to look at if you're taking notes, T-I-M-K-E-L-L-E-R. He's all over the YouTube and everywhere. It's fantastic, right? Tim Keller tells us this, right? Tim Keller says this, Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a summary of the entire Christian life. The entire Christian life what you have to do, why you do what you do, is summed up in those two verses. Um, what it means for you to be a Christian, what it means for you to live as a Christian can be summed up in those two verses. A lot of times, students and myself and adults, we're, we're not great at quiet times, right? This is just not our thing. And part of that is because we don't know where to start. We don't know what to read. These two, it's two verses, these two verses would be a great place to start. A deep dive into these two verses will do you a lot of good. Another scholar, a guy named N.T. Wright, says this about Romans 12, 1 through 2. Listen to this. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Paul's entire written work could be seen as an extension of Romans 12, 1 through 2. Paul's entire written work, Paul wrote... 12 books in the Bible, 32,408 words, nearly a quarter of the entire New Testament. And it can all be seen as an extension of these two verses. So there's a lot hanging in these verses, so we're going to take them and teach. This is my favorite way to teach the Bible. It's not the only way to teach the Bible, but this is my favorite way, is to take it a piece at a time. We're just going to ring it out for all it's worth and move on to the next thing. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, let's just look at verse 1. Let's just look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Look at the first word. Look at the first word. What's the first word? Tell me. What's the first word? 
therefore, okay, this is hugely important in Romans chapter 12, because therefore is a connecting word, okay? Don't tune out. I know it's grammar. Just just chill out, all right? Therefore is a connecting word which connects the thing that came before it to the thing after it. So if you remove it and you just start with the thing that comes after it, you're not going to understand it. When Paul puts therefore, or in your version it may say, and so, or so then, this word is connecting Romans 12 to everything that came before it. Okay, This word is connecting Romans 12 to everything that came before it. We learned, uh, a couple of you guys were there, we learned at Passion 2020, that your 30s come after your 20s. Wow, right? And here, the word therefore, okay, and here, the word therefore, Paul is telling us, listen, By putting the word therefore before the rest of 12, he's saying, and when I find the notes, I'll tell you, he's saying, what I'm about to say to you is based on what I've already said. In other words, if you start here and you don't apply what I've already said, it's not going to make sense. And here's why, okay? The book of Romans is divided into two large pieces. Romans 1 through 11 is a layout of the gospel, okay? It is the most in-depth, detailed, beautiful account of God's mercy moving towards us in Jesus Christ. Creation, fall, redemption. How Jesus can save us from our sins. That's Romans 1 through 11. Therefore, Romans 12 through 15 is how we live that out. That is the skeleton of the book. Please notice. Please notice, okay? Paul spends 11 chapters laying out the gospel of Jesus before he ever gets into how we behave. You see that? Paul spends 11 chapters talking about the gospel before he ever gets to how we're supposed to live it out. Put another way, He tells us the gospel before he ever starts talking to us about our behavior. I told this story last week, but it bears repeating, okay? And some of you guys will remember this, and now you'll just just get it even more. Uh, News story, several months ago, hotel in Michigan, right? Hotel in Michigan, they have a water, their water pump is on their roof, okay? And this pump for the water pumps the water through all the building, through the Uh, into the kitchens, into the showers, into the sinks, right? A bird made its way onto the roof of the hotel into the pump and died there. So now, and authorities discovered it, had been rotting in this dirty pump that's pumping the water into the hotel. A bird has has died in this pump and has been pumping water in the hotel with the dead bird in it for 18 days, okay? 18 days. Now, but listen, but listen. The water still got out. It was still doing it. The water was still going. But the water doesn't matter if the pump is dirty. You see what I'm saying? The water doesn't matter if the pump is dirty. Too often in churches, we hear people preach sermons about how to be a better dad, a better mom, a better person, a better leader, how to beat your anger, how to help your relationships, how to find your purpose. And those things are good in their time. But listen, listen. But, but we don't mention the gospel. Imagine me going to that hotel and saying, let's just dump out the dirty water from this sink and wait for more water to come in. But Ryan, that won't matter because the pump where it all starts is dirty. 
Exactly. That's why even the nice churches, not just the churches where the, the old dudes are yelling at you all the time, right? This is why even the nice churches where they just tell you to love one another, even Sunday school lessons that just teach a good moral lesson, they don't work ultimately because it's still not getting to cleaning the pump in your heart, which is what only Jesus can do. A little systematic here. In Exodus, God only gives Israel the Ten Commandments after He frees them from Egypt. He only gives them the Ten Commandments after He frees them from Egypt. Now that you've been freed from slavery, I'm going to show you how you can obey my law. Why not do it the other way around? Why not give the Ten Commandments first and then set them free? Because they couldn't obey Him if they were still enslaved. And Christianity is not, Christianity is not, Christianity is not, obey me and I'll set you free. Christianity is, I'm set free so that I can finally obey. In the same way, you will never be, listen, you will never be a better friend, husband, worker, less anxious, less angry, more confident, and on and on. Because we keep trying to change out the water without changing out the pump. You see what I mean? Exodus comes before the Ten Commandments. It's going to be on the board. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. This is Jesus at the transfiguration. This is for the church kids. This is um, and the non-church kids, right? This is where Jesus is kind of transformed. He's, he's glowing bright white and shining. And Moses and Elijah are talking to him. And the disciples, three of the disciples are just kind of watching, right? That's so what it says. Who appearing in glory, it's Moses and Elijah, they were speaking to Jesus about his departure, when he, what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure is Jesus dying on the cross, okay? So Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his departure, about what he's going to do on the cross. In the NLT, it actually says the word, but do you know what the real Greek word is here for departure? It's exodus. The same word used for how God got Israel out of slavery is applied to Jesus, because only through him can you get out of slavery. In Romans 6.20, Paul calls us all slaves to sin. We cannot obey on our own. We talked about this last week. Even if your behavior is great, you know what's going to be just as good with it? Your pride without Jesus. So even your behavior is messing you over in the long run without Christ. We need an exodus, again, not just from another country, but from ourselves, from our sinful hearts. Paul spends 11 chapters on Jesus because once you are set free from bondage to sin by Jesus, then your obedience will actually work. Then it will connect because it will be grounded in something other than just being afraid of going to hell or other than, well, I'm just supposed to do it. I don't understand it. I don't like it, but I know I'm supposed to do it. That will never last. It will never last but if you've been set free by Jesus, now your obedience isn't rooted in fear, which will fade away, or just because I said so, which will fade away. It's rooted in Christ. So let's get into it. Romans 12.1, so it says, Therefore, right? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy. Notice it doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, I urge you, brethren, because God gave you purpose. I urge you, brethren, because God loves you. He doesn't say it like that. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God. The gospel is not ultimate. And the reason I harp on this so much is because this is all you guys are getting fed by church accounts on Instagram from crazy teachers and preachers who don't have a clue what's going on. It's all about this. The gospel is not ultimately about finding your purpose. The gospel is not just a plain, frankly, unhelpful reminder of God's love, whatever that is, what I'm doing with my fingers. The gospel is the specific action, the specific action of God showing mercy to a sinner by sending Jesus to die for his or her sins. The gospel is not a general feeling of love. It is a specific action of God as a result of his love. It's not just this generic feeling of love. The gospel is a specific action from God as a result of his love, which means that your primary identity my primary identity, who you really are, the core of who you are, is someone in need of repentance and forgiveness from God. That's who you are. At the bottom of your core, you are someone who needs, I am, someone who needs forgiveness from God, someone who needs to repent. If you have a head cold because of a brain tumor, I should not just treat the head cold. You'll feel better as you die, and the head cold will come back because I haven't gotten rid of the root problem. Too often, churches all across the world, churches all over what you guys are seeing, they preach that your root problem is that you're just without purpose, or it's just about your mental health, or it's just about your self-esteem, or leadership. All the while, your deepest need is to see God's mercy towards you and towards me. That's your deepest need, is to see God's mercy better. His mercy is what changes our hearts. Kristen has a kid in her class who has ADHD, which is fine, but he's also kind of a jerk, right? And he blames his jerkness on his ADHD, and so do his parents, okay? So it's kind of a nightmare, right? So he'll openly defy her. Sorry, I'm ADHD. I don't know what you want me to do. And so she'll send him out in the hall, and I won't say his name, but she'll say, what you think you've got is not the root problem with you. That is not what makes you defiant. I asked you to do something, you said no to my face. That has nothing to do with your ADHD, that is not the root problem, even if you think it is. Can I tell you something? The stuff in your life and in my life that we see as our main problem is not our main problem. Head colds are annoying, for sure, but they're not cancer. Our main problem, your main problem, my main problem, is that we rebel against God. We need His mercy more than anything. And according to Paul, He gave it. I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God. In view of God's mercy, in view of the, 
the gospel, that he sent his son to die for our sins, what do we do now? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. To present your body as a sacrifice. Ooh, that sounds kind of icky and strange. This is temple language that Paul is using, okay? This is religious, hang with me, this is religious temple language that Paul is using. Paul is making a point to show these Christians that the old temple ways are done, okay? As Christians, we don't offer specific forms of sacrifice, right? You go to the temple, you offer the, the sacrifice for your sin, right? The lamb or the dove or whatever it is. Paul says, we don't do that anymore. We don't offer a specific sacrifice as Christians. What do we offer? We offer ourselves. We offer ourselves. God does not want what you can give. He wants you. Does that make sense? He does not want what you can give. He wants you. Listen to Tim Keller. To be a living sacrifice, living sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. Fully at God's disposal. It means actively willing to obey God in anything He says in any area of our life. Being willing to obey God in anything he says, in any area of life. Let me get this guy out. This is, uh, you know, like in Sorcerer's Stone where Hermione opens Hogwarts of History and it's this huge, I gained some of you and I lost some of you. And that is perfectly, I'm content, okay? Uh, here we go, 773, listen to this, 773, here we go. Regular meetings together of Christians for praise and worship, that's church, regular meetings are appropriate and commanded in Scripture. And what happens at those meetings in church is certainly worship. But such special times of worship are only one aspect of the continual worship that each of us is to offer the Lord in the sacrifice of our bodies day by day. Day by day. Not just on Sundays. Not just on Wednesday nights. A living sacrifice. Now look, think about what that says. Living sacrifice and holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice. It literally means a living killing. Sacrifice, you have to kill the animal, right? How do you become a Christian? What do you do now that you're a Christian? You live your life as a living killing of yourself. Judaism, what, what does Jesus say? Pick up your cross daily. Die to yourself and follow me. Jesus is just, Paul's just quoting Jesus here. We are living out our death every day. Judaism is defined by the daily offering of sacrifices. Christianity is defined as the daily offering of ourselves. Judaism was the daily offering of sacrifices to honor God. Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity is the daily offering of ourselves to God. Christians are not Christians because of where they meet. You can ask kids at your school, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I go to such and such. I attend. No, 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 no. Christians are not Christians because of where, where they meet, but because of who they are. But because of who they are. God's mercy has cleaned out the pump in our hearts so the water goes clean no matter where it goes now. Do you see that? Now no matter where the water goes, it's clean because the pump has been cleaned out. It's not water modification. 
It's getting a new pump in our hearts. Sacrifices in Old Testament times, right? I know you're in the Old Testament all the time, sorry. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were completely burned up on the altar. Completely consumed. Every part of it. And Paul is saying, the Christian, living sacrifice, the Christian, we are completely consumed by God's will. Whatever part of me you need, God, use it. The political part, the social media part, the money part, the attitude part, the anxious part, the angry part, my unwillingness to forgive, my unwillingness to confront. It's yours, God. All of it burned up in your will. Whatever you want me to do. And then it ends in verse 1. This is your spiritual service of worship. Paul is keeping this temple language here. He's saying, that's how the Jews used to worship. Here's how you worship. This is your way of worshiping God. Not in offering a sacrifice to be completely burned up, but in offering yourself to be completely consumed by God's will. One quick thing here. Look at what it says. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your, what's this word? To present your bodies. Does everyone see that? To present your bodies. This is hugely important. When it says body here, the word body in the Bible means your whole self. Your whole self. Just as we discussed, right, the whole thing. This would be shocking to the ancient world who believed that stuff and material was evil, true spirituality was caring just for the spirit and not for the body. You see this in people today. Minimalist movement. You see the whole thing. The less stuff, the better you get. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Worship includes your body. This would be shocking. But I also can't help but think about our culture's discussion of sex and gender. Who we are bodily matters to God. Paul just said it. Your body as a living sacrifice. Paul saying the word body, and he, said, he could have said soul, right? Or heart, or whatever else is on Instagram, right? Paul says body to show Christianity is not just an inward thing, but an outward practical thing as well. If the body is part of the whole person, then what we do with our body matters to God. Jesus did not come to earth just as a soul. His soul was wrapped in flesh and intimately connected to it. Exhaustion and hunger, right? Bodily things, they make you angry or anxious. Have you ever been hangry, right? Okay, it's biblical, right? What happens to the body affects the soul. That's why Paul specifically says we offer our bodies here. Because, listen, high schoolers especially, when you start dating, listen, the most direct path to your soul is through your body. The most direct path to your soul is through your body. That's why Paul doesn't say offer your heart as a living sacrifice, because to say body is the same thing. The most direct path to your soul is through your body. This speaks massive volumes to physical stuff and relationships, to marriage, to gender debates in our day and same-sex marriage. The body matters to God. In a couple of weeks, we'll start the big issue for high school, and this is something we'll walk through. 
Um, Romans 12, 1 again, it says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, a spiritual service to worship. Um, my version says, holy and pleasing to God. Is it up there? Am I crazy? May, oh, sorry, acceptable to God. I was like, okay. Holy service, acceptable to God. Last thing of this verse, Tim Keller says this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, pleasing or acceptable to God. Tim Keller says this, the gospel radically changes our lives so that we are not seeking to please others or even ourselves, but God. We are, and and that's, that's so like, yes, Ryan, thank you for filling me on this new information that I'm supposed to be pleasing God. But the gospel changes our lives to where pleasing God is our ultimate priority. I remember um, when I was in elementary school, I was like eight years old, and I was at basketball camp. Uh, and we were in line for this game, and these really cool fifth and sixth graders thought it would be a great idea to cut me in line, right? Okay? And me being eight years old didn't say anything. But then like all these high school counselors, right, who I just, who, I mean, they were gods. You know what I mean? Like the high school, and they all go, hey, hey. And they run over, and they look at the fifth graders, and they were like, you don't cut Matherly. And I was like, oh. <laughs> like, I thought it was the coolest thing ever because as an eight-year-old, these high schoolers were like, hey, hey, that's Matherly. Now, let me tell you why I tell you this story. It is the best feeling, listen, it is the best feeling in the world. It is the best feeling in the world to be valued by someone that you value. It is the best feeling in the world to be valued by someone that you value. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Over time in your life, Paul is saying, you will pour yourself out more and more so that you can be valued by God, so that you can hear God say, thank you for that. Good job on this. Well done, good and faithful servant, because you value him so much. You won't do that if you value other people more than God, if you value your own stuff more than God. But over time, he begins to change your heart to where you start to value his input more than anyone else's. And you want to be acceptable and pleasing to God. Verse 2, and then we'll be out. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed. Meaning, do not be pressed into the pattern of this world. Do not let this world that does not know God dictate what you think about marriage, about what is okay and not okay, about what family is, about what's okay before marriage, and on and on, whatever you think. Do not let this world be the thing that transforms you and molds you. This world that continues to be all about, you know this, right? All about tolerance and acceptance. As long as you are something that they're cool with, if you are something that they are not cool with, you will be eaten alive. Paul is saying, do not let them mold you and push you into being like the rest of the world. Do not conform. This is huge with social media. How often are you exposing yourself to everything the world feels and sees? Keep that in mind. I'm not, the, your phone is not a demon box. I'm not one of those people, right? But anytime you get on, you are being molded by that. You are being molded. Do not be conformed, but instead be 
transformed. This verb is present tense. This transformation is something you are continually living out and experiencing. It is not one and done. And then if you get it wrong after, well, I guess you weren't transformed. No, 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 no. To be transformed is to actively, we're now trying to push back. We're now trying to be different. We're trying to push away the anger. We're trying to be quick to apologize. We're trying to get rid of the things that cause lust. We're trying to work hard. We're trying to to push through these things. Now, because we've been made new, now we act differently. It's present tense. You are being transformed. It's okay if progress is slow. Be transformed. What does it say, though? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The theme of Collide is this, this idea to renew. Look at Rome, or, well, it would be on the board. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. The renewing of your mind. Romans 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile, that means foolish. They became foolish in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became foolish in their thoughts, renewing your mind, and their hearts were darkened. Have you ever watched the news or heard someone doing something sinful, or heard of someone doing something sinful and thought, why did you do that? How can you be so foolish. How could you do this? Or have you done something yourself foolish and sinful and thought, that was ridiculous. Look at how much trouble I'm in. Look at how miserable I am. I'm never going to do that again. And then as time passes, the temptation starts to swell up again. And as you are about to do it again, you think, I cannot believe I'm about to do this again. Why am I doing this again? Paul says that is a spiritual issue. Romans 1, our minds and our hearts are darkened. We are sinful. Our minds are affected and clouded by sin. Sin is not just bad things, okay? It's the stain that those bad things leave on our hearts and minds. It's the bacteria that keeps living and dirtying up the pump in our hearts. But God in His mercy renews our minds. Our thinking stops being foolish because of His mercy. In view of God's mercy, our heads clear and we start thinking straight. In other words, listen, in other words, we don't just start doing the right things. Anyone can do that. Enough fear, enough incentive. Anyone can do the right thing. But listen, to have your mind renewed means not just that we do the right things, but that we understand why those right things make sense. It's not just doing the right thing. It's understanding and agreeing with why those right things make sense. We are thinking the way God wants us to think. Uh, how many of you have ever had the joy and privilege of, being, of having to read Shakespeare for school? Raise your hand. I'm trying to take a swing at Shakespeare. Good. <laughs> William is alive and well. Um, so here we go. Uh, I had read Shakespeare in high school. It went about as well as you'd think. And I went, and my dad is an English teacher, and so I would go to his office afterwards and complain about it, right? And I would tell him, I was like, I don't understand why we have to use Shakespeare. I think we just shouldn't teach it. And my dad, who's an English teacher, just like went off on me for like 10 minutes. Not in like a yelling way, but he went on this like 10-minute rant. You see where I get it from, okay? And he started talking about, uh, even the sixth graders were like, oh, okay, got it. Uh, he started talking about how Shakespeare is so important. 
and how it's the foundation for the rest of the English playwrights and how it's where we get the literature we have today and why we should keep it. And at the end of this 10-minute rant, I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I still don't understand Shakespeare, but you're right. And I'm going to start focusing on this more because I get why this matters. And listen, it's the exact same thing here. To have your mind renewed by God, your heart changes, and now it says... God, I don't know why you designed it this way, but I want to agree with you, and I know your way is right. I don't know why I'm in this situation, because I really want to give in and do this, but I know it's wrong, and it's against you, and I've never felt that way before. Matt Chandler is a really good pastor, and he talks about his conversion before he became a Christian. He was one of these, maybe they're here, he was one of these that would come up and say like, yeah, but what about creation? What about, you know, whatever, Cain's wife? What about this? And he had all these questions about all these, and that's why he wouldn't become a Christian. But then he became a Christian, and after he was converted, he said this, I still had those exact same questions. None of them had been answered. I still had those exact same questions, but now my heart wanted to agree with whatever God said about them. His mind had been renewed, not just to know what God thinks, but to agree with Him, to trust His answers. A renewed mind, listen, a renewed mind is not a mind that understands all the things of God. A renewed mind is a mind that agrees with the things of God, regardless of our level of understanding. You don't need a degree to have a renewed mind. You need a new heart. That's what you need. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.16. It'll be up here. 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? What does Paul say? But we have the mind of Christ. Becoming a Christian, your brain changes. The way you interpret things, the way you see the world changes. You start to see things the way Jesus sees them. God renews our darkened minds through Jesus Christ. This, again, is why you can't just teach good behavior and purpose and good morals. Because our hearts and minds are so darkened that we either can't even understand it, or we may understand it on like a surface level, but when it really gets down to it, we don't see what's in it for us, so we won't obey. As Christians, our minds are being changed by God's mercy. And last but certainly not least in Romans 12, chapter two, or verse 2. That, okay, okay, middle of the thing. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This word for prove means to approve of something. As part of being a Christian, you approve of God's will. It means you understand it and you agree with it. Approving of the will of God means to understand and agree with what God wants for you. Once you become a Christian, you don't just learn what the Bible teaches. Your heart becomes aligned with it, so when you're sinning, you will know, even if you haven't explicitly read about it yet, your heart is already going to be lined up with what the Word says. Last thing, Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. Look at what it says. I will put my law within them, 
and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He puts his law into our hearts. Being a Christian is not about learning your way into it. It's this act of mercy where God changes our hearts. Paul is talking about this renewed mind, this renewed heart. It's God moving in mercy towards us. Taking your mind that wants nothing to do with him, that thinks he's boring, that thinks he's unimportant, that thinks he's out of date, and all of a sudden, he's not that anymore. That's the gospel. If we try to teach you to obey without that, you're going to burn out and you'll leave. But once the gospel comes, once your heart is changed and you want to obey, and it makes sense now, the Christian life comes into focus. These two verses are the Christian life. Let's pray.